1: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for April 13th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington.
0: This is all about um, being being in the trenches together. And these nations that are on Russia's border feel a threat from Russia um, and, as such, are really contributing uh, to the alliance's defensive uh, efforts in the region.
1: Our guest this week is Nina Jankowicz. She is a Global Fellow at Washington's Wilson Center. And she joins us to talk about the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, commonly known as NATO. Our focus, the history of the organization, how it's funded, challenges by the Trump administration, as well as Russia, Syria, terror threats, and aggression from other international players. Nina Jankowitz, let's begin with the formation of NATO in the 20th century. Two World Wars. World War II comes to an end in 1945. How and why was NATO formed?
0: So after a couple of years, after the the end of the Second World War, um, NATO was formed not only in response to Soviet expansion, which is often what we hear not only from from historians here in, in the West, but also in the East. That's certainly what Russia likes to say. But it was also in response to European nationalism, as well as to create and maintain a sense of European political integration. Um, although it's a defensive mechanism, right? It has some stipulations about being a community of democracy Um, And I think that's a really important key understanding for the challenges that uh, NATO is facing today. But as the first Secretary General Lord Ismay said, uh, NATO was created to keep the Soviets out, the Americans in and the Germans
1: down. Has it worked over the last 70-plus years?
0: Well, I think there, there have been ebbs and flows. Um, I think certainly during the Cold War era, uh, as a direct response to the Warsaw Pact, it did maintain Euro- European integration uh, and European security, uh, a Europe whole free and at peace. But in uh, the post-Cold War era, it's kind of struggled to find new footing. We, we had the intervention, of course, in the Balkans. Um, and then famously, the only time that uh, Article 5 was invoked in response to 9-11, Um, I think the United States found NATO support very helpful. But in the post-9-11 world, we're, we're, again, struggling to define what NATO means in the 21st century.
1: Can you give us a sense of how NATO is structured, where it's based, how it's organized? and how it's funded.
0: Sure. There are 29 member states. Uh, the headquarters is in Brussels, although uh, it took a while for, for NATO to decide on that. It had stints in Paris, I believe, early on. Um, and in terms of the funding, this is one of the great misconceptions of our of our current era. Uh, you know, President Trump says that uh, the United States is owed millions and millions of dollars from NATO countries not paying their dues. There are no dues for NATO. Uh, what the NATO member states have agreed upon is a 2% defense spending threshold uh, by which each member state is uh, always Modernizing and spending on their military up to up to and above two percent of their budget. Um, There's not uh, this due paying, and the United States is not taking on an undue burden uh, for other nations. We're not paying for other nations' defense. It just so happens that nations like Latvia, for instance, don't really have the need to create a a huge standing army like the United States might.
1: In a piece for Foreign Policy, the title is "Arsenal of Democracy." I want to go back to your earlier point about President Trump. You say. Quote, his preoccupation with the dollars and cents of NATO belies his lack of understanding of the history and meaning of the alliance. Mm. Can you elaborate?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So again, we often think of of NATO as this primarily defensive mechanism, and it is. It's a defensive, cooperative mechanism, but it's also a political grouping of nations, uh, an alliance of democracies, of of countries that respect human rights. And in order to join NATO, um, nations like Poland and the Czech Republic and the Baltic states, who were in the first and second wave of NATO integration in the early 2000s, had to undergo uh, a process of a membership action plan, whereby the current NATO members set out a, a system of uh, goals for modernization of the military, um, including uh, a, a lack of a draft, for instance. Um, and uh, in addition, there are political stipulations that go into that, um, not only the rule of law and respect for human rights, but basic foundational democratic principles. And in this way, the um, Joining NATO is kind of viewed as a stepping stone to further democratic development. Uh, it it really has a meaning um, in in places like Poland. I was just in Poland last week, um, and 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 Poles really respect NATO. Uh, they fought long and hard to to become members to join this community of of Western democracies, um, and they're not going to give that up. and And I think that's something that that kind of democratic values based argument for NATO is something that uh, that President Trump really. Missed. Misses.
1: Let me take that one step further. How about in Germany? How do the German people view NATO?
0: Well, I think uh, they they have a bit more of a complex view of NATO than uh, one of the newer member states, for instance. But they were one of the original member states. I, I don't know any uh, recent public op- opinion polling. Um, I'm sure it varies, as it does in the United States. But uh, Germany is, is at its core uh, one of the... Uh, most important member states for NATO, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, uh, despite what uh, differing public opinion might bring to the German public.
1: As you know, earlier this month, the president welcoming the leaders of three Baltic nations Explain their role in NATO and, and why this is such an integral part of the organization.
0: Absolutely. Well, the, the Baltic nations uh, all share borders with uh, with Russia. Um, of course, uh, the, the Estonian uh, question, so Estonia has this uh, land border with Russia. There is a significant uh, ethnic Russian population in Estonia. Uh, recently, Russia conducted war games over, uh, over the summer uh, in which uh, it envisioned sending troops over the Estonian border. Um, Russia has also been buzzing Baltic airspace for a long time. And of course, uh, there was a question in 2007 when Russia launched a cyber attack, or Russian actors launched a cyber attack, although we we do have strong suspicions that this was sponsored by the Russian government, whether Article 5 should be invoked over a cyber attack. Um, And in response, it was decided that, of course, that that shouldn't be the case. But uh, NATO has kind of built up its cyber and online capabilities. And a lot of that is based in uh, in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Um, so they're they're strong contributors uh, to the NATO banner. Uh, Estonia, of course, is one of one of five nations that uh, contributes more than two percent of its uh, defense spending. Um, and I believe the others are Poland, France, the United States, and. The UK, uh, I might be wrong about that one. You'll have to check my math, but, um, but, but yeah, these are these are uh, these new contributors to NATO are are the are becoming the organization's backbone. Poland, of course, uh, famously has has sent troops to Iraq and Afghanistan um, for uh, for your freedom and ours, which is another thing I mentioned in in my article. Um, that's the banner that Polish troops fought under. So uh, th- this is all about um, being being in the trenches together, and these nations that are on Russia's border feel a threat from Russia um, and as such are really contributing uh, to the alliance's defensive uh, efforts in the region.
1: So you're a strong proponent of NATO. You think it's a good thing.
0: I do, yeah. I mean, I think uh, not only for military reasons and, and uh, the political integration reasons, but for this uh, adherence to democratic ideals. Now, I, I will say very honestly that I'm I'm worried about those democratic ideals, in the NATO space right now, we have uh, n- Poland, which I just mentioned, which is undergoing uh, an assault on its rule of law. Just this weekend, uh, Viktor Orbán was reelected in Hungary, and he kind of was the uh, boilerplate for the the Polish assault on rule of law. He um, famously is extremely anti-migrant, anti-Semitic, um, and a- and against integration uh, in in the European Union. Um, there's talk of of Hungary also thinking about exiting the European Union. I don't think we'll ever see that because they depend too strongly on on European funding. Um, And of course, Turkey as well with its coup in 2016. So um, this is the reimagining that I'd like to see of NATO rather than uh, President Trump talking about how it's funded or how we're owed millions of dollars. If he really thinks NATO is obsolete, as he said in, in the summer of 2016, although he's somewhat walked that back now, let's talk about how to make it an alliance for the 21st century, not only in the military and defensive regard, but also in the democratic realm
1: but Nina Jankowicz does the president have a point when he says the US pays a disproportionate amount in the NATO budget
0: No because that's not really how the budget works um the we we spent we choose to spend more on defense because that's our sovereign right uh, as a nation um all of these all of these nations are now working toward the 2% threshold but there's no stipulation in uh in the NATO treaty that says you get kicked out if if you spend less than 2% um maybe the 2% threshold is a is a Silly threshold to begin with. Maybe we'd like to see Estonia or or Latvia spending more on cyber. Uh, maybe we need to be a bit more strategic about what how nations spend their military budgets. But two percent um, for for each nation may or may not be a, a doable figure, and maybe that should have a sliding scale. Um, these are all questions, legitimate questions that should be asked about how we we fund our collective defense. Um, but but uh, kind of. Dragging nations' names through the mud, in particular Germany, uh, which the German defense minister and Chancellor Angela Merkel had to respond to claims of Trump's that Germany owed the U.S. billions of dollars uh, for for NATO spending. Um, That's not the way to go about it.
1: And you mentioned earlier Article Five and invoking Article Mm Five. What does that mean? What is that?
0: So uh, an attack on one is an attack on all, and that's the grounding principle of NATO. It's only been invoked once before, as I said, after nine eleven, but. it means that uh, the the NATO uh, alliance takes it very seriously um, when an uh, a nation's sovereignty is uh, is infringed upon or an attack happens, which is why you know when we're considering um, adding nation states uh, like Georgia and Ukraine uh, to the NATO alliance, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not that's a good idea, as there have been recent infringements on on sovereignty of those nations.
1: Based on that, then, how does NATO maintain its military muscle, if you want to refer to it as that, while not raising the tensions with nations like Russia?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in the past, there's actually been some good cooperation between uh, NATO and Russia. There's a NATO-Russia Council. Um, Russia has uh, representatives at NATO headquarters um, in in uh, hopes of in, engendering cooperation between our militaries and not making this just a, a balancing act um, of forces in the region, but um, Of course, I think times have changed since the heyday of that cooperation. Uh, And that's why, you know, the the nations of NATO are really strongly considering whether to consider uh, Georgia and and Ukraine and other nation states as members. We did recently add Macedonia, but I don't think that's as much of a a threat to Russia. Um, It's a delicate balance. And uh, one thing that I think Russia really needs to realize is that um, the nations in its former orbit have the free will to align themselves politically and militarily as they so choose, regardless of uh, what they would like to believe was their post-Cold War vision of the world. Um, and uh, and that's something that the, the West respects. Uh, and if a nation really has a, a strong desire to be aligned with NATO, then then NATO is going to consider if if that's in the best interest of the alliance. And if it is, then they'll put that membership action plan forward for those nations.
1: And as you well know, some of those threats include just go down the list, the tensions inside Syria, threats from ISIS, mm-hmm. our military presence in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and Iraq. Mm-hmm. So how does NATO fit into all of that?
0: Well, this is this is a part of the new vision for NATO. Uh, I remember during the migration crisis, I, I visited Greece, and there was a lot that the EU was doing uh, in the waters between Greece and Turkey uh, to patrol there, to uh, help deal with the flow of migrants. And my question in the back of my mind was, where is NATO in all of this? And apparently they did have one, one ship going back and forth, but it seemed like more of a NATO question. I mean, Greece and Turkey, both both members of, of NATO, uh, dealing with the flow of people. This is something that NATO hasn't really reimagined for itself yet. Um, what is NATO's role in terms of responding to terrorism uh, on in these kind of threats that don't uh, necessarily... Uh, pinpoint one nation state or one NATO member as their uh, as their adversary how does it respond to that these are all questions that NATO is still trying to figure out for itself and I don't have any good answers about that but it's part of what in addition to the funding in addition to the democratic principles NATO needs to think about as we go into the 21st century and again these are the kind of questions that we haven't seen this new administration ask they've asked the very easy questions and the bellicose questions but we haven't we haven't seen them ask the hard questions about really reforming NATO and making it an alliance for the 21st century.
1: Nina Jenko you're now at the Wilson Center, but if you were in Brussels and had to write a mission statement for NATO in the 21st century... What do you think it needs to include? You've touched on some of them already.
0: Yeah, I think the first thing for me is is the community of democracies. Uh, what does it mean to be in NATO in the 21st century? And and what are the markers by which, uh, if a country has democratic backsliding, sh- should its NATO uh, membership be reconsidered? And then how do we deal with these transnational trans-border threats, uh, not only in relation to terrorism, but in relations to things like uh, cybercrime and cyberattacks, which can really 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 be deadly. We haven't seen one yet, thank goodness. But I don't think we're far off um, from a nation getting into the uh, power grid, for instance, of of a NATO member state. And how does NATO respond to that? These are the types of questions uh, and and things that I'd like to see NATO consider in its mission statement for for the future.
1: As you well know, Europe is going through the whole Brexit movement between Great Britain and the European Union, and that clearly is more of a trade and economic organization. NATO is much more, as you point out, a defensive organization. Are there any parallels between what we saw in Great Britain and Europe on the EU, or is NATO on much more solid ground with our allies and alliances?
0: I think it's on more solid ground because... uh it's, it's collective defense is something that's really important to a lot of the European states, that without NATO, if, if an attack were to be launched, on the European continent, uh, a lot of them would not be able to stand up uh, and defend themselves without NATO. So I think there's that. Um, also politically, uh, on on the public policy level, I don't think a lot of people, and I think the same goes for the United States, really understand what NATO is and what it does. Um, and so there's not that public backlash uh, f- that you saw with, with Brexit or, or Grexit for that matter, although that seems like a million years ago now, um, against uh, this uh, wider, political integration.
1: Again going back to your piece which is available at foreignpolicy.com, you're saying that no one, none of the NATO countries willing to throw it away for any short-term financial gain.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. And it's again that commitment to values that that is the under 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 uh, current to to all of the NATO member states that I think is really important. It's not just about collective defense but about this kind of greater vision for the future.
1: You travel across Europe extensively What is their view of the United States in general and of the president's current policies?
0: Ooh, that's a tough question, and one that has uh, been personally a bit difficult for me uh, to deal with, kind of in comparison to the pre-Trump era. Um, I remember sitting at a conference uh, that the OSCE, another security and cooperation uh, uh, organization, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, kind of a competitor to NATO, although they work on, on different uh, many different things. But
1: How so? How is it a competitor? Uh, so uh,
0: Not a competitor in that the OSCE would never stand up a military force the way that NATO does, but they're a security organization, collective security. So they work on um, mitigating and monitoring conflict zones. They have a conflict uh, monitoring mission in Ukraine, for instance, also in Nagorno-Karabakh between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, as well as the the uh, border in Georgia, between Georgia and Russia and that disputed territory. Um, so that's one thing they do. They also do election monitoring uh, and kind of democratic development, a bit different than than NATO. But I was at a conference in Vienna, That they hosted on freedom of the media. And uh, this was in June of 2017. And I remember um, sitting and and, uh, listening to keynote speeches, not only by Americans, but by some other Western nations, including Great Britain. Um, And rather than being the beacon uh, that we once used to be for things like freedom of the media and freedom of speech, uh, for once the United States was being rebuked by our own allies um, for viewed uh, assaults on these institutions, and um, that's something, a trend that I've seen across the, uh, across the continent in the conferences and conversations that I've been a part of over the past 18 months, where uh, we're not in the position to be uh, teaching or giving advice the way we used to. Uh, often the tables are turned on us, and um, it's a very, very strange position.
1: Does that worry you?
0: It does worry me. It does. Uh, I think, uh, as Madeleine Albright wrote this week in the New York Times, uh, the world is is at a point where we really need American leadership, and we seem to be squandering that, um, not only not by respecting the institutions that make us unique, but also by uh, abdicating leadership through not having a coherent foreign policy, um, abroad. I think, uh, in, in particular, I just published a piece, uh, in relation to the Russian, uh, diplomatic expulsions. Um, I think this was a really great show of unity among Western allies, um, in response to the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in the UK by Russia. But, uh, the thing that worried me about it was that we didn't hear anything from President Trump himself. We heard from Mike Pence, Vice President. We heard from Nikki Haley at the UN. We heard from Sarah Sanders. But but President Trump himself didn't come out and say anything uh, about what was a very serious assault on sovereignty um, and human rights and a violation of chemical weapons treaties. It goes on and on. Um, and, and that lack of credibility does translate, unfortunately, to a lack of credibility Um, on the world stage.
1: But as you well know, the president has often said, it is time for other nations to step up to the plate. It cannot just be the United States. How do you respond to that?
0: Yeah, I, I I agree that you know the, this is a burden that should be sta- shared. Um, and this, like I said, this diplomatic uh, response to the um, poisoning and diplomatic expulsions was a great show of, of unity um, amongst m- most of our allies in Europe. I think that we we host a disproportionate number of Russian diplomats because we are a larger country, so it makes sense that we would expel more. Um, I don't I don't think that uh, that that. Kind of rhetoric can um, can really extend to all parts of our diplomatic relations with other countries and. Um you know, President Trump says that America. He wants to see America made great again. America is great already, and and we do occupy a disproportionate space in world politics, and this is a, a burden, uh, but it's also an honor and something that we should really embrace uh, and and use to our full advantage, not only for the advantage of the American people, but world peace and uh, and unity writ large. I mean, maybe maybe that's a lofty goal, but I like to think that of of uh, of all of the things that we've done over the past if we're talking about since the creation of NATO it's it's for not only Europe whole free and at peace but uh, more more uh, down the road uh, for a world that's whole free and at peace Um, and if President Trump doesn't understand that then I'm not sure I can (laughs) offer more guidance for him
1: (laughs) let's learn more about you you are fluent in how many languages
0: oh I don't know about fluent I'm fluent in Russian and my Ukrainian and Polish are passable
1: (laughs) why is this your passion
0: Uh, Well, the short version is that my grandfather, uh, my grandfather was born in what is now western Ukraine outside of Lviv uh, in 1929. And when he was 10, he and his family were deported by the Soviet forces uh, because they were loyal to Poland. Uh, And they were in a work camp in the Arkhangelsk Oblast for a few years during World War II. He and his family joined the Anders Army and migrated throughout Central Asia and Russia, eventually getting on a boat in Persia, what was then Persia, now Iran, and ending up eventually in the United Kingdom where he met my grandmother and married her and he moved to the United States, lived the American dream. uh, And so my Polishness, I guess, and my, uh, my knowledge from a very young age of this region and kind of geopolitics, because I mean my life is in existence because of because of World War Two and the geopolitics at play there Um, very early on sparked an interest in the region for me. And then uh, during college and graduate school, I learned Russian, lived in Russia and eventually went to work in Ukraine. Um, And it's just uh, it's a region that I can't get out of my blood. But I I think uh, it's a it's a key to to peace, if you look at all the world wars that were fought, a lot of the heaviest fighting has been in, in the region of Poland and Ukraine, for instance. Um, and these are just fascinating cultures, fascinating people, uh, and their democratic development is also really interesting to me. And it's, it's all happening right now. So I feel very privileged to be working on these issues at this time.
1: In addition to your work at the Wilson Center, you're also working on a book?
0: Yes, I'm working on a book on uh, the development of Russian disinformation in Central and Eastern Europe over the past 10 years. Um, disinformation is kind of what I've been focusing on uh, more since since that foreign policy piece and, and my time uh, before I went to Ukraine when I was focusing a bit more on NATO and, and uh, collective defense. But but yes, now disinformation is my, my main interest um, and Russia really uh, has tried out these tactics uh, from Estonia as we mentioned, those cyber attacks there, uh, through Poland, Ukraine, Czech Republic, um, and finally in the United States. So we were not the first, and that's what I'm trying to prove and tell the story of with this book.
1: If people want to follow Nina Jankowitz on social media, how can they do so?
0: Yes, I have a Twitter account. Uh, it is Vichipedia, so W-I-C-Z-I-P-E-D-I-A. It's a silly pun. Uh, and, and I also have a Facebook account too, but I'm more, more active on Twitter.
1: We thank you for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio studios. We appreciate you being with us.
0: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you.
1: And thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio and find all of the episodes and more on our free C-SPAN Radio app and online anytime at cspan.org.